This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Previously on Colors. The war in Ukraine and the racial implications of evacuation. I started getting calls from my parents a lot more saying, hey, maybe you may need to think about getting out of Ukraine. Maurice Mo Creek is a professional basketball player, a black man from the Washington, D.C. area, and his attempts to get out of Ukraine turned from hopeful to desperate. I kind of felt down and helpless, like when my assistant coach tried to get me across the bridge one day, and I thought I was getting out, and it was all guards on the bridge with guns, like, you want to turn this car around. He was lucky, but he knows others, because of their race, were not so lucky. Coming up in this episode of Colors. Anna Smith is a multiracial woman living in Washington, D.C., executive director of the Workforce Investment Council of the District of Columbia, and she's got some very important thoughts about race to share. More often than not, the questions I receive are, what are you? What's your mix? Where are you from? Where are you really from? Um, and so it's it's racism in that it is the uh, understanding that I am different in the uh, potential assumptions or stereotypes that may come along with me being not white, but uh, I also benefit from not necessarily looking like a black woman, an Asian woman, a Latina woman. And um, I think that has somewhat insulated me from having um, uh, people engage with me in a, a hyper-focused way that um, is based on assumptions and stereotypes. That's coming up in this episode of Colors. Simmering racial tensions. Segregation now and tomorrow and forever. Fighting injustice. I have a dream. Conflict looming. Brutality exposed. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. The search for solutions starts here. From WTOP in Washington, D.C. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. Check the mic and make sure it sounds right, boys. And I am black, I am Nigerian, and I am Yoruba. And I'm from the great old state of Rhode Island. Michael L. Crenn, I am white, and uh, I currently live in Boone, North Carolina. Dina Cervantes, uh, Chicana from Los Angeles. My name is JJ Green. I'm black, and this is Colors. Several weeks ago, I had the opportunity to speak to a group of people from the German Marshall Fund. They were part of the Marshall Memorial Fellowship Program. It was an impressive group of people from all over the world, representing a diverse field of occupations and interests. One of the people I met during this engagement was Anna Smith, who's local, director of the D.C. Workforce Investment Council. She's a mixed-race woman with some very strong and interesting opinions about race in America. She's off on a fellowship tour of Europe, but before she left, we spoke with her on Colors. Anna, thank you for joining us. Give me your views on race in America right now. Boy, started with a big question. 
I think we're at a moment where um, there's even more um, access to information and an opportunity to understand perspectives other than your own. And at the same time, a highly politicized environment as we try to identify and discuss and grapple with issues of race um, now and the legacy of race and racism in our country. Um, I think overall, I'm I'm optimistic, I'm hopeful, uh, but I also know we have a long way to go. As a multiracial person living in the U.S., do you believe you've been impacted by racism? Have you examples or been targeted by people that were intending to be racist? That's a tough question for me. Uh, I think my sort of ethnicity and upbringing in a white household uh, is something that I enabled me to not look at and think about race in much the same way many white people have the privilege of doing throughout their lives. Uh, And I also benefit from being racially ambiguous. Um, More often than not, the questions I receive are, what are you? What's your mix? Where are you from? Where are you really from? Um, And so it's, it's racism in that it is the uh, understanding that I am different in the uh, potential assumptions or stereotypes that may come along with me being not white. But uh, I also benefit from not necessarily looking like a black woman, an Asian woman, a Latina woman. And um, I think that has somewhat insulated me from having um, uh, people engage with me in a, a hyper um, uh, uh focused way that um, is based on assumptions and stereotypes. What about the systemic uh, element of racism, Uh, something that um, is sort of ingrained in all of our systems in this country? As an African-American man, I can definitely identify with the systemic issue. Uh, And uh, I know other folks of African descent, uh, mixed or not, can as well. But it's all an individual thing. Have you seen elements of systemic racism in your climb to where you have started from to where you are today? Yes. Again, I think for me, the evolution of my identity and my understanding of where I fall is probably one that puts me on a position of having benefited from white privilege and seeing it from the perspective of a white person, even more so than a perspective of a person of color or an African-American Um you know, I think about uh, my own understanding of what it means to be multiracial and, and the responsibilities and also the benefits that I'm endowed just by how someone might perceive me or look at me. Um, but uh, of course, you know, my identity, I think, is fraught with the fact that, um, you know, I, I only know what was in my adoption file. I was adopted when I was 10 months old into the United States. Uh, my mother was Korean father mixed black and white, uh, so my mother said in my adoption file, only to also find out then many years later through genetic testing that my father was most likely Puerto Rican. Uh, And so that's uh, added another layer of where do I fit? Where do I belong? Um, But for me personally, I think about and engaging in the systemic, uh, addressing the systemic issues of racism. I've seen it probably even more so through my work and um, as a mixed person engaging in um, education, in urban education, in sitting on a charter school board, in you know the the work that we do here um, in Washington D.C., 
it is it is evident that we we still have a long way to go as a nation. So what do you have as an approach? Do you have a a plan or do you have some ideas about what you would like to see done to improve all of the many issues that are out there? Do you have anything that you consider guiding principles for you when you uh, sort of look at this and how to address it? Absolutely. I think I've, I've benefited from um, engaging in um, the grappling at a personal level, right? I, I didn't really have to think about my race uh, until I was in, in college, perhaps. Um, not quite Asian enough for the Asian American Student Association. I'm clearly not a Black woman. I didn't really quite fit with the African American Student Association. And at that time, there wasn't a multicultural student association. And um, so for me, it's it's also been just a lot of, of sort of self-awareness as a, as a person, because I feel very strongly that, you know, unless we each individually are continuing in our own journey of how we engage and what we have responsibilities for doing from, from where, whatever our advantage may be, it is hard to lead um, and, and make progress in this area. I think for me specifically, um, I coming from starting as a first, second and third grade teacher in Miami, Dade County Public Schools, where my students were equally African-American, Hispanic, mostly Central and South American, and Haitian, um, I saw firsthand the, the real barriers that exist and have been um, you know, pretty much focused on issues of addressing inequality ever since in a variety of ways. And I think part of the conversation is really getting at the root of the legacy of um, injustice and, and true barriers to opportunity that we as a nation have created through policy, through laws, through redlining, through uh, all of the the legacy of of racism in our country. And so I I do believe and think about, um, you know, the conversations about reparations, like in my world and at public education or now workforce development, we're talking about and we we often have uh, the word equity come into the conversation and in you know DC public schools and our public education system, we have a, a waiting at risk waiting for uh, children who may be lower socioeconomic background, English language learners uh, coming from the foster or juvenile justice um, systems, and it's it's a few thousand dollars. Yeah. And at a converse, conference some time ago, the conversation was the question was posed: What would it actually take to close the achievement gap? And the answer being a more hypothetical question of what would it actually take to raise every single child at a middle-class, upper-middle-class lifestyle and and the dollars and the resources to overcome all of the um, uh, sort of outcomes and, and challenges that have resulted from all of the years of history of inequity and, and uh, racism. And so when I think about that in the public health system and the workforce system and all of these ways, um, we can't just be thinking about solving from this moment. I think taking a more contextual and long-term view is going to be critical. And I think the conversation around reparations is uh, is an important one for us to be um, building upon. There are a lot of hard things out there to do. And, um, you know, we need to do them. We, we can't shrink from them because they're hard. They have to be done in order to move on, in order to improve. That's just my view. I'm going to ask you in a minute about your views on how the death of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and others 
impacted the racial reckoning or racial awareness in this country. But first, I want to ask you um, something a, a little bit more basic, um, you know, about your journey. As you started, you, you've, you've kind of given us, you know, a bit of your early background. But um, talk to us a little bit about, you know, your, 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 your education, your, your college, and your, your work experience. And, you know, what, how that prepared you for what it is you're doing now. And because clearly when we, you and I met a couple of weeks ago, um, you were preparing for a very big uh, fellowship. Uh, and um, I, I can only imagine that that's the next step or stage in your life. So I'm just kind of interested in how your, what your path has been to get to where you are and um, how race plugs into that. Absolutely. Um, so I grew up in a really small, white, predominantly white town outside of Washington, D.C., about an hour outside of the city. And as I said, in a white family, my parents are both white. I have a brother who's full Korean and two siblings who are also white. I was one of two Asian-Americans in my class of a little over 100. And we're each half Asian. And so if that tells you anything about um, uh, the community I grew up in, uh, I I don't know that I even knew, and again, the, the privilege of not having to think about race, that was the world in which I grew up and, and, and you know, for many, many years, never really had to reflect on being a person of color. I, as crazy as that might sound, it was teaching in Miami where my students would look at me and say, well, Ms. Smith, you, you speak Spanish, but you're not, you're not Spanish. You're not black, therefore you must be white. And they would confuse me frequently with Miss Nelson, the blonde haired, blue eyed teacher down the hall. Hmm. Because if we're both white people, they, they didn't see Asian. They don't know what Asians are. There's not a, a, a presence. They, they weren't sure which box to put me in. Right. And it was eye opening for me and having to really think about who I am and what I am um, in, a, in terms to be able to explain it to second graders. Um, and so I think, you know, lots of hard lessons and mistakes and missteps and things that I have done and, and reflecting on what it's like to not be of the, you know, white majority in a community and what it's like to have to um, think about experiences of people who are and have been systemically marginalized. I remember, um, you know, coming out and recruiting teachers and I recruited at universities focused on um, diversity, right? We need more teachers to inspire our young people and who reflect the cultural and racial backgrounds of some of our students. And one of my colleagues, an African-American woman, we're in this conversation and she's like, I walk into my room and I look around and I look for other black people. And I determine how I speak and how I think and how I interact. And I have never had to think that way. And so it was both a learning opportunity and also a reflection of how and what I do to create space to be supportive and inclusive or not. And um, I think that's, I've had other instances and and moments throughout my career that um, have just continued to push me in my own thinking and challenge me to to continue to see what I can be doing to break down those barriers. Yeah, that's really interesting. And that that's actually a fascinating path when you think about it. Um, you know, I, there's another person that we've had on this show who was, she was uh, a Korean, little Korean girl that was adopted by a white family. And she had two white sisters. 
uh, and she said on the show that she grew up with them, and later on in life she realized that there were questions about how they actually felt about her. And, you know, so it also opened up questions about how people in her community felt about her. And, you know, the the, the, the kids confusing you with a blonde lady, you know, that's just this another another layer of how people feel about how people actually view people of color or people that are different from them. So to the George Floyd question, um, you talked about this awakening for you. So I've heard and I myself had my own awakening that day. Um, In fact, this program was born out of George Floyd's death. So I'm wondering what you think it was about his death. I mean, because there's been a lot of other people of color, men of color who've died at the hands of police over the years, decades and centuries. But what was it about this um, that made this difference? I mean, this awakening. Did you have you ever thought about that or have you ever just wondered what that situation was or do you even have an answer for it? I remember very vividly. Uh, I think for me, it was actually um, Trayvon Martin uh, was that moment uh, in a way that I won't ever forget. Um, and and when George Floyd was murdered, it was reinforcing. But um, I vividly remember the checking my phone. I was out with some friends, all white people, uh, on a rooftop here in Washington, D.C., and uh, I was checking my phone over and over. They were about to do uh, have the verdict um, uh, for Trayvon Martin's uh, murder. And I remember seeing he was cleared and being aghast and being angry and furious. And are you kidding me? And I, I walk out and like say it loudly to this group of people who are sitting there, probably eight or nine people. And I was like, oh, my God, are you kidding me? Not guilty. And all of them look at me. Yeah. And then just keep going on with the conversation. Yeah. yeah. Just keep going on with the conversation. Yeah. No, I, I get it. I get it, man. I, get I had it. I had to text and call friends of color who I was like, what the heck? Like just to to have that connection, have that empathy and understanding. And it horrified me that these were people I was around and with. And I I have over the years had to be really intentional about who I spend my time with or I don't because that said a lot to me about who they are and were. Um, and, uh, you know, yeah. we know that these happen. We, yeah. I hear you. I get it. And, you know, we could talk about that, just that for an hour, you know, because I get it and I understand it and see it all the time. Very last thing for you, um, ally fatigue, and then I'm going to let you go. You know, I've been hearing this thing about people, speaking of that that scenario you talked about, people just saying, okay, whatever. Um, the ally fatigue, people who are on board with, okay, yeah, we need to fix this problem. But then after a while, it's like, okay, I'm tired of this. I don't want to do this anymore. I'm going to move on. How does that strike you? I think this is such a hard moment, and this is where it comes back to being authentic, being yourself, and trusting that if you are open and um, interacting with humility and respect for perspectives other than your own, I think there's there's a a fire that once it's lit in you, you can't diminish it, right? right? Like if that's truly where you're coming from, I I can't not ask about issues of race. You you can't 
not see and be infuriated by the inequity and the racism you see. And I, I can also see how for some people, a hesitancy or an uncertainty about, well, am I doing what's right? And I see this from some of my white friends. Am I doing what's right? Or am I, am I, you know, uh, just along the edges or am I being patronized? And, and it often, I think, stems from a lack of just that work that they've done in themselves. And it puts yeah. them in a position where it's, it's easier for them to step back or step away or not engage. And mm-hmm. even on this fellowship, I brought this up with, uh, I'll make this my final point. My, uh, we were at a, a, a group. We've got Europeans who've come to America and Americans who are all coming to Europe. And there's about 30 of us or so. And um, there are only a few people of color, one African-American woman, one Latina woman, uh, and a couple other folks with different backgrounds. But um, I very directly said to the head of the program um, that I I gave immediate feedback. We After the fifth white man we heard from in a conversation, my um, aspiration that we as an organization need to do more and better. We talk about diversity. We had literally had a conversation about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and yet our room didn't reflect it. The speakers didn't yeah. reflect it. And um, and so that that is what I'm committing to helping this program do in the future. But well, good for you. Yeah. Really good for you, because that's something that needs to be done. I know you got a hard stop here. We're going to let you go. Um, but I want to say before you go, this is the German Marshall Fund uh, Fellowship. Is What's the exact name? Sure. The German Marshall Fund Marshall Memorial Fellowship. Yeah. focus of is strengthening transatlantic relationships and yeah. it has been eye-opening learning and, and having these same kinds of conversations here in Europe. I was in Denmark, I was in Brussels and I'm now in Rome. And my last note here, uh, we had dinner with uh, some alumni from the German Marshall Fund program, Europeans in Copenhagen who participated. And um, I was pleasantly surprised and grateful that one of those was a woman named Rushi uh, who it was the first Pakistani, first brown woman telecaster in news in Denmark. And um, we yeah. had a really, really great conversation. And uh, I'm excited to keep digging in on this on this program. Yeah, you know what? Congratulations. You deserve it. Thank you for doing that. And I, I appreciate you taking some time during your fellowship to talk with us on Colors. We're talking with Anna Smith. Anna, thank you and uh, best wishes and good luck on your trip. And uh, we'll check in with you soon. Thanks for having me, JJ. Take care. Stay tuned for some thoughts about race in America and details about our next guest. You're listening to Colors. My name is Anjali Chong, and I am Korean-American living just outside of Seattle, Washington. I was born in Seoul, South Korea, and my family immigrated to Hawaii when I was a little girl. We were part of the wave that arrived through family reunification, or more recently coined as chain migration. Growing up in multicultural Hawaii, I felt very comfortable in my own skin and never had to defend my presence here in this country. Lately, that's changed. It has been heartbreaking to see the surge in violence and hate crimes towards Asians and Asian Pacific Islanders, which was already on the rise last year due in large part to the normalization of racist rhetoric from our country's leadership. This community quickly became scapegoats for a global pandemic. In the last year, I have personally experienced mockery towards me and my children by a stranger and other microaggressions for no apparent reason other than our race. 
The question I always ask myself when I hear about these incidents, which is happening far more often these days, is why? Whether it be misperception, fear, hate, confusion, this pattern of Asians being the forever foreigner or threat is hurtful. It also negates the contributions that the API population has made over the decades. As we have seen, this racialized scapegoating is something that has been repeated in history and only harms communities. I am hopeful that our current president is addressing this issue and condemning anti-Asian racism, but we need to do more as a community at the grassroots level. It is my hope that we be better bystanders, report any hate incidents, be allies for one another, and figure out as a community how to combat the other virus of racism. We have to do better. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. If you have any questions or comments about Colors, send us an email. You can reach us at colors at thecolorspodcast.com. That's colors at thecolorspodcast.com. I'm Bumia Kinusotu, and I am Black, I am Nigerian, and I am Yoruba, and I'm from the great old state of Rhode Island. I'm Michael L. Crin, I am white, and uh, I currently live in Boone, North Carolina. Dina Cervantes, uh, Chicana from Los Angeles. My name is JJ Green, I'm Black, and this is Colors. Coming up in our next episode of Colors... Linda Thomas-Greenfield, the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations. Well, I, I certainly don't see myself as being historic. Uh, there, there, uh, there have been African-American women in this position uh, before, uh, but I do feel personally uh, that this has been a, a historic moment in my own life, uh, given where I started. She's talking about the nomination of Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, I grew up in the segregated South. I uh, grew up uh, in a poor family. Uh, So to be where I am, given where I started from, uh, is uh, really uh, extraordinary for me and for my family. But also on this historic vote today for our uh, Supreme Court uh, member, I am uh, so proud of of, uh, Ketanji Brown. Uh, she is she is making history. Uh, this is a historical moment, and I am so proud that I am here to witness that and to be part of her making history. And Thomas Greenfield, too, is making history as the war in Ukraine unfolds. That's coming up in our next episode of Colors. Time to go, and in doing so, we say thank you to Hillary Howard, Mike Jakaitis, Joel Oxley, Julia Ziegler, Yuri Sack. Thanks to Olivia Dalton, the press staff at the U.S. Mission to the U.N. Thanks to Kathleen Floyd, Kevin Stanfield, Jamal Bowens. Thanks to the members of Hillendale United, the Montgomery County, Maryland Police Force, and the East County Regional Service Team, and Mr. Jeru Bande. And for the music. Thanks to Jesse Gallagher, Cosmic, and Offshane. And most of all, thank you to you for listening. And just remember, keep talking to each other. And just as important, keep listening to each other. You can subscribe to Colors on Apple, Spotify, Podcast DC, Podcast One, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America.